0: Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned, the title of the sermon is, Are We Still Required, Are Christians Still Required to Give a Tithe to the Church? We're looking at Nehemiah chapter 10, and I will uh, read the same passage we read last time, which is verses 32 through 39, just to get the fuller context on their commitment to giving uh, to temple worship. <clears throat> And then making that connection by, we'll jump around to a couple of passages, you don't have to to follow along every time I reference a different passage, but uh, just be prepared for that. We're only really focusing on on verses 37 through 39 uh, this morning. But R.C. Sproul does not mince words when discussing the tithe, as as he rarely minces words on any topic, if you've ever read him, he's quite bold, uh, was bold. Um, you know, we're thankful for, for the books and the, the, the ministry teaching that he has done that will uh, continue uh, to bless the church. But in his book, Five Things Every Christian Needs to Grow, Sproul writes this, A poll of people claiming to be evangelical Christians indicated that only 4% of them tithe four percent of evangelical christians a similar poll indicated that the average percentage of income evangelical christians give to god's work is less than two and a half percent so he concludes if the tithe principle is still in effect and the polls are accurate then 96 percent of professing evangelical christians are systematically robbing god so he's clearly taking an application from Malachi chapter 3 uh, and we've read from that passage on occasion uh, to discuss this topic, this idea of robbing from God. He, he, he says it there uh, in a way that I would agree. If the tithe principle is still in effect and the polls are accurate, then 96% of professing evangelical Christians are systematically robbing God. Um, the, the question is, is the tithe principle still in effect? That's what it boils down to. And that's what I want to focus on. And many Presbyterian ministers will follow that train of thought. Um, when I went to seminary, I sort of assumed uh, the ongoing validity of the tithe was standard practice in Presbyterian churches. That was my experience in the only two Presbyterian churches that I've been a, uh, a member of prior to going, well, actually, during seminary. I was only a member of one Presbyterian Church before that, Sierra View in Fresno, and then I um, went to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi and joined that church, and both of those churches use the language of tithes and offerings in their bulletin. Uh, so where you see in our bulletin, we've got the element there, offering. And you, that might give away a little bit of, of where I'm heading in, in this message, but When we first started, I followed the same tradition. I I had tithes and offerings, and the implication is that you're obligated to give a tithe, and then the offering is in addition to that tithe. Um, And so you might give, you would remain obligated to give a tenth, um, and then on occasion giving an offering that goes above and beyond that um, would also take place. So last week I mentioned that this passage teaches us some principles. Of giving we learn to make a commitment to give money regularly generously and proportionally the tithe could fit every one of those categories right and 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 it would do so well you can give generously if you're giving a tithe you would give regularly for sure and you would give proportionally so this is perfectly aligned with those who who are committed to that view um, but it's that third point proportionally and what I mean by that that I want to want to dig in a little deeper so what would you what would a survey of Your expenses reveal about the things that your heart treasures And Jesus said where your treasure is there your heart will be also he said this in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapter 6 verse 21 I would say that our modern obligation seems to boil down to this that Christians should give generously they should give joyfully and they should give voluntarily so let's ask the lord for his help in understanding this passage before we read it heavenly father we thank you for your word once again we recognize that every time we open your word we depend upon you to give us insight and understanding and we ask that your spirit would speak to us that by faith we might receive your word and respond in obedience to it, Lord. If it brings conviction, I pray that we would repent. If it, if it brings comfort from the gospel, may we rest in that. May we be reminded of your grace and your mercy that is held out to us in Christ. And Lord, even where we, uh, where we, maybe need to to make changes to our giving or make changes to the to our life our our lifestyle and may we do so not with a grudge but joyfully and we do so with gratitude recognizing that it is an appropriate response to all that you have done for us we ask this in Christ's name amen Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 32 so remember this is in the midst of the of a really a formal agreement that the Israelites are making with God as they have come uh, back to jerusalem they've they've rebuilt the the temple and they've now rebuilt the walls and they're experiencing this some something of a revival as they are sitting under the, the regular teaching of god's word, uh, convicted of areas that they've neglected and and being uh, Conform, conforming themselves or seeking to conform themselves to God's word, um, rightly, and so this is now in response to that. They they make this formal agreement, and you have that list of names that sealed that agreement at the to, uh, top of the chapter. They they make some obligations to only marry within the covenant community. We talked about that um, two weeks ago, uh, and that that remains a, a pattern in the New Testament. And then you have obligations as well to honor the Sabbath, another aspect that I believe components of that remain under the new covenant. So when we look at these obligations for giving in this passage, we'll see some of that that is, in principle, still very much appropriate and applicable. And We call that the general equity of the Old Testament law. So read with me verses 32 through 39. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly, a third part of a shekel, for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, and the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house. Of our God and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor and the priest, the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes, uh, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Amen. This is God's holy word. So giving a, a, a commitment to give money proportionally. Uh, Derek Kidner, he reflects upon the temptations of the covenant community, both before and after exile. He writes this, before exile, the temple had too often been a mere talisman and its well-patronized activities a sedative for the conscience. You can reference Jeremiah 7. Now the temptation was the opposite, to grudge the effort and expense of it all. So that's their temptation to grudge the effort and expense, to neglect the house of our God. And prior to that, I would say that they used the temple as a mere talisman, as a, a sedative for their conscience. They, they gave so that they might live as they pleased. They gave, and then they recognized all the ways in which they. They sinned against God, and, and so to make up for that, they, they gave in the temple. Right? And, and so um, they assumed that their gifts also sort of gave them license to disobey God's law. In fact, they, would have, they entered into idolatry, uh, serving other gods, covering their bases, as it were. But since returning from exile, now their temptation is to purify right, their practices and so they're now, the, the temptation has shifted right, to, to having this grudge against the effort of giving. Sort of wanting the blessings of the covenant, wanting God to restore all the blessings of being in the promised land, of having the temple wor- worship taking place again, the avail- availability for them to, to go to the priests and make their sacrifices and offerings. I want to be able to do all that without the cost. And we can relate to to both of those tendencies today, right? Those of us who've grown up in the church, or at least those of us who have some recognition of of giving, of an obligation to give, we can use our gift as a bribe to get God to do what we're asking in our prayers, or maybe as a penance for our sin. We've had a really bad week, I better give a little extra this week. They give to improve their odds when they pray and shake their magic eight ball. They think, if I give this money, God will give what I want. But then there's the other tendency, right, to completely abandon the obligation altogether. To avoid turning God into our personal lucky charm, we deconsecrate our wallet. Lord, you can have all of me, but you know this this thing over here i'm going i'm just going to leave that one in the world I, you can you can we can focus on this i'll give my time and i'll give other things and and i'll be really passionate in worship and i'll be regularly there uh, but you know i'll continue to give like the world i'll do what i want with my money so our spending doesn't look any different than the secular world who cares nothing about god's kingdom and they're not out planting churches they're not supporting missions and ministries they might be giving to others and those in need but they're not giving for the purpose of glorifying god and so we want to approach our giving much differently right? as christians we need to approach it much differently and then we can learn some principles from this passage to correct our hearts the first thing we see is just the moral obligation of the tithe in the old covenant it's it's clear they had a moral obligation to give the the covenant renewal that they were signing and agreeing to here is to give and receive tithes he mentions the word tithe many times that hebrew word literally means tenth it means to give a tenth of your production of, of whatever you receive right? so whether that be vegetables fruit grain wine oil whatever it is, they, would, they were responsible for bringing a tenth of what they earned in their labors. And so the agreement ensured that no one was going to complain when the Levites collected that offering, when the Levites collected that tithe. Uh, but even the collection, it says here, is su- supervised. And it, it was protected against maybe rogue Levites who would, who would collect more than they were allotted, or who would take the portion that they had received and and hide it for themselves the Levites as well are not exempt from the tithe they're not simply taking the money and then spending it on themselves they they're they're taking that money and then also giving a tithe of that to the priest so the Levites would have collected the funds and then out of that large pool of funds they would have given a tenth to the priest now prior to exile that was there was a large group of Levites so that was Um, there was plenty there for the priests. Uh, After the exile, as they've returned, the the number of Levites is much smaller, and so this this tenth uh, probably put some some priests in a a much different, you know, precarious situation where the the funds are are very low uh, to even cover their needs. We don't know precisely, but but it, it does seem interesting that there's not a complaint here registered from the priests. we've got to make up for this. We've got to get back to restoring uh, the wealth that we had prior to the exile. Uh, They're they're not. They're just wanting to honor God with the obligation that they've been given. And so the Levites are to give a tithe as well. Um, Notice also that all of these contributions in this chapter go towards sustaining the work of ministry. They are to give financially. They were to go and collect wood to bring wood that means they're giving their time they're to give um, first fruit offerings firstborn offerings you can look at our our sermon from last week where we go into more detail about that Uh, and then they were to give tithes that sustain temple ministry so it's out of gratitude for what they had received from god that they now give back to him and the church in every generation in every geographic region, should be sustained by the contributions of her members. That, that is a principle that I think is, is very clear uh, from this passage, that, that those who, who teach should have their lives sustained by the ministry, those who are called to teach in a, in a, in a manner that, it, that devotes their lives to it. Right. So uh, we have leadership in this church. We have ruling elders that voluntarily give their time. And then you have, I'm the only teaching elder here, but I, that's a, a life vocation, right? And so the church is responsible for sustaining that ministry. Now, generally, when you read the prophets in the Old Testament, what is their critique about the people of Israel? It's that they had neglected the house of God, that they, had, they were filled with corruption in the temple. Not just the people, but the Levites and priests had grown corrupt, their practices. And it seems like there's even maybe a a relationship between the two, that if one fails, the other fails, right? So that when the leadership fails, the people fail. But when the people fail to give and sustain the ministry, it seems inevitable that those Levites and those ministers are going to be compelled to, to, to find ways to make ends meet. And so if, you're, if they're not sustained in their work that God has called them to, how can they continue to provide food for their family and provide food for their, you know, for their loved ones? So it seems like they're going to begin to cut corners and find ways to, to, to make it work, even if it means breaking the law. Well, that's, that's what we find over and over again is, you know, whether it's uh, in reverse order, whether it's the, the Levites and the, and the priests, corrupting the people or the people becoming corrupt first and, and, uh, and causing conflict within the temple. To have the, the burden of financial concerns on top of the burdens for the care of souls is too much for many to handle, and you see that today in the church. Um, burnout among ministers is increasingly common. In fact, uh, a recent study showed that a third, up to a third of ministers are in extreme or severe uh, uh, state of burnout. Um, and where they're, they're to the point where they're causing health concerns, right? They need, they need to seek some attention, some professional help. A third, that's crazy. And you have most burnouts occur, I mean, you can narrow it down to maybe a handful of, of reasons, but two of the more common ones would be conflict within the church, and finances and right? financial concerns and so of course these last few years as everyone knows the pandemic has has heightened both of those to unprecedented levels it is something that you should be aware of and praying for one of the ways that that we safeguard against that is that we we encourage giving that is sacrificial right at every level the parable of the widow's might encourage us encourages us to give sacrificially no matter how much we have. C.S. Lewis wrote after reflecting upon that parable, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. So that means that it'll vary for all of us, right? A $50 contribution is, might be the same kind of level of sacrifice for one person as a $1,000 contribution for someone else. We're called to give according to our means. Uh, another example I'd point to of, of giving sacrificially is Randy Alcorn. He, some of you might know, he's, uh, he's a prominent author in the evangelical community. He, he lost a, a settlement in court that required a, a payment to an abortion clinic of $8.2 million dollars. And so the day before his wages were going to be garnished, he, he personally didn't owe 8.2 million, but all of those who were, um, were the defendants, uh, like when you divided the portions, basically his portion was a quarter million, $250,000. That's how much each one of those defendants would have had to pay to, to, to cover this settlement. And the proceeds, would, or the, all of the funds would have gone to this abortion clinic um, that won their case. Now, you can read the story about why they were un- under fire. This was a, a long time ago. Uh, and it was before some of the protesting at abortion clinics had really, like, some of the laws had been written. And so it, it seems that, from, from my understanding, <clears throat> this group had, had stood, out, stood in front of a, an abortion clinic. They weren't just, like, standing on the sidewalk protesting, but they were actually kind of lining up in front, causing people to uh, actually be blocked from entering in. Um, they did it peacefully they didn't do any anything violent uh, but it had risen to a level that was breaking the law and so the court found in favor of the abortion clinic but randy Elcorn refused to contribute to that he could not see himself giving any money to the abortion clinic fund so he had to quit his job he was a pastor uh, for several decades i believe at this point had planned on being a pastor the rest of his life. He, he quit the day before his wages were going to be garnished and, and given to the abortion clinic. He was already writing books at this point, and so all of his book royalties, 100% of them, uh, he began donating. So he started a nonprofit um, ministry where all, he basically became a full-time writer, and all of those royalties go to the clinic, and then they give 100%. He can only take a salary of, of a minimum wage. Um, and so they ended up having, his wife had to work and become the secretary of this uh, nonprofit. But whatever he earned above minimum wage would have been garnished and then given to the abortion clinic. And so he refused. So for 10 years, the abortion clinic had yet to receive any money from Alcorn. And so the judge extended the settlement for another 10 years. So now it's 20 years. He continued to write books. He continued to live off of minimum wage. By 2019, Alcorn realized that the donations from his book royalties added to $8.2 million. He'd given away the amount that the settlement uh, had been for him to pay that abortion clinic. Instead, they had, God had used that <clears throat> to extend many ministries, to give to, to many different ministries over the years. But this was his comment in response, because some people said, but, man, think about all you could have done. <clears throat> with eight million dollars. He said, some have wondered if I realize what we could have done with over eight million dollars. My answer is always the same. Nothing that would have brought us nearly as much joy as we found in giving it away. I firmly believe that they're not my book royalties, they're God's. Nancy and I certainly don't need them and it delights us to see God using them to touch lives all over the world. He's got a really short, excellent book called The Treasure Principle. I'd, I'd encourage you to read it. Um, but he mentions there just the, this principle, I think is, is convicting in, every good, in, in a good way it, that the gracious component of the new covenant, it would seem, would cause us to be more generous, not less. He transitioned from the old covenant to the new covenant it would seem that that graciousness that 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 expansion of grace that we've received now in the new covenant would cause us to be more generous and so if the average evangelical is giving two and a half percent of their income we may have a fundamental misunderstanding about the relationship between grace and gratitude and giving second corinthians 8 Verses 1 through 4 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. These are the churches you'd read about in in, um, Revelation 2 and 3. For in a severe test of affliction. So these churches in Macedonia are experiencing a severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That's a profound statement. The combination of their severe test of affliction with their extreme poverty results in an abundance of joy and an overflowing generosity. That's the impact that the gospel has on us. That it should have on us. Verses 3 and 4 says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. As, as Paul said, no, 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 you guys, we know, we know your condition. Don't, I'm just letting you know of the needs so you can pray with us. Don't worry about you know, giving. And they said, what are you talking about? Of course we're going to give. Don't prevent us from being a part of this. All right. So, what is? How does this relate to the obligation under the new covenant? The tithe, I think, seems to make a significant shift under the new covenant. Reverend Thomas Peck, a Presbyterian pastor and professor, he wrote an article called "The Moral Obligation of the Tithe" in 1890, and um, it sort of won the day at that point in the Presbyterian Church. And I, He recognized, first of all, that all men are morally bound to acknowledge their dependence upon God. They are obligated to give thanks to God by offering to him a portion of what he has given to them. He recognized that. That, That if you're giving nothing, you're out of accord with God's word. You're morally bound, in fact, to acknowledge your gratitude through financial gifts, through an offering. The question that he wanted to focus on in his article, though, was not whether we're obligated to give something, but whether we're obligated to give a tenth. Are we still obligated in the same way that the Old Testament saints were? And so he uses two, two types of arguments. He first of all begins with the arguments from the light of nature. He argues that there is no perpetual tithe according to both the light of nature and scripture. So first of all, he says that according to the light of nature, no one has proven universal obligation to give a tithe. And no one has proven that just based on our creation, that that as we look out, we have a principle of of giving a tenth. um, Outside of the church, you don't find that. Uh, Or at least outside of religious institutions, you don't find that. So Israel adopted the custom of tithing in order to sustain the priesthood. We see that here. That was the reason why they were giving, was to sustain the lives of the priests and their families and the Levites. So before that, any offering that was made did not have a precise percentage attached out of obligation. You can point to to two examples. You have Abraham, who gave a tithe to the priest Melchizedek. But if you read the context of the passage in Genesis 14, it's talking about a particular occasion. This was after war, and he takes the spoils of war, and he gives a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek. Um, and so Peck argue, says this, if, if the instance proves anything for the theory of moral obligation, it proves that there ought always to be a visible priesthood to receive the tithes. It's, it's clearly connected to a priestly authority. You have Jacob as well, voluntarily committing to give a tithe to the Lord after he has his dream in Genesis 28. Ten through 22 but there's no commandment it's not like he had a dream and in the in that dream it said give a tenth no it was out of gratitude for god blessing him with that dream that gave him this assurance and confidence to move forward um, and equipped him to the work he 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 assured or he promised god a tenth thirdly we, we read here from the light of nature the the new covenant church spoke nothing of the tithe for the first three centuries they said plenty about almsgiving but nothing about an obligation to give a tenth and so that's an important factor here um sprawl mentions something in the didache which is a first century document and i'll need to do more research before i conclude what that says but i from my understanding it's not as clear that he's taught that it's it's requiring a tenth in the didache but it does talk about a requirement of almsgiving, of giving to the Lord. So again, would be consistent with what Peck is arguing. Right? That we are obligated to give, but it's not giving a specific amount. So according to the light of nature, the most we can say is that we are obligated to give to God a portion of our substance. We ought to recognize that God has graciously provided us with all that we have. It is our responsibility to steward those resources in such a way that glorify him. And One of the ways we do that is by giving back to him. For sustaining uh, ministry. From Scripture, and we'll be, um, we'll try to move through these a little bit faster, but these are the important ones, right? Arguments from Scripture. Some assume that, that Abraham was obeying a custom when he offered that tithe to Melchizedek, but Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Again, it was to a priest as we already pointed out earlier. So if this were an obligation, it's, it's odd that this remains the only biblical example of it occurring, it's, it's, it's in war. You could have read, you, you would think you would find this throughout Joshua, every battle they entered, that they're giving some tenth of the spoils, but instead what you find is that the spoils are either entirely destroyed or entirely devoted uh, to the temple. Others look to Hebrews 7 and they suggest that the tithe is a perpetual obligation because the priesthood is perpetual in Christ, that Christ is our eternal, our chief priest, our high priest, and that we continue to give because he is uh, the, the perpetual priesthood. Well, you also have the, uh, the priesthood of believers, that concept in in the New Testament. So, We'll see when we preach through Hebrews, I don't have time to get into this section as as in depth, but we'll preach through Hebrews, and the purpose of comparing Christ to Melchizedek is not to establish the tithe in that passage, but it's to justify the mysterious order of Christ's priesthood. If, If he is our great high priest, how could he be when he belonged to the tribe of Judah? How could they make sense of that? Well, he was considered a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's the point that the author of Hebrews is making in chapter 7. All right, so moving on, the required structure to adopt the Old Testament tithe would seem out of accord with what we find throughout the New Testament. Giving would be more like a tax collected rather than a gift received. It would be referred to as a lawful obedience rather than voluntary and generous. It would be an act of submission rather than an act of faith. Uh, And I I recognize that those two can go together. But the idea here is that the language we find revolving around giving to the church is is one of voluntary, one of generosity, one of um, of flexibility, right? Not one of a, a determined law. It would also require discipline of those who failed to give the tithe, which means that we would need, in fact, to know your how much you made that year we'd start having to track your your income tax right how much you've you've received um and the Mormon Church does that successfully so it's not out of out of the question that it could be done but we don't do that right and we don't believe it's consistent with the New Testament practice and we don't have a system of tracking taxes performing income audits among our members you don't find that in the New Testament. Lastly, the New Testament is not merely silent on the requirement of the tithe. It actually proposes something contrary to the tithe in its place. If, if the Philippian church was required to tithe, why was Paul so thankful for their generosity in Philippians 4? Uh, when Paul argues that pastors should be paid in 1 Corinthians 9, it's a mystery that if the tithe were a requirement, why he doesn't bring that up. He doesn't refer to the tithe, but to the natural right of pastors to be paid for their labor. That's where he's mentioned in uh, 1 Timothy 5, he mentions not muzzling the ox. that's worthy of its labor. So what is perfectly clear from the teaching of the New Testament over and over again is that our giving should be generous and joyful. That's the language we use when we take our offering here in the church, and therefore it, it conveys the gratitude that we have for our redemption and our trust in God's ongoing provision. And so if the offering in the New Testament is everywhere found to be voluntary, then it's safe to conclude that it has replaced what was obligatory under the Old Testament. But I actually think if we understood giving rightly, it would not make us less generous. That, that we would have an abundance not knowing what to do with it if we gave truly out of the hearts that are, are, are stirred by the gospel. Supporting the ministry generously and joyfully requires sacrifice. So regardless of your present economic condition, listen to how Paul articulates his argument and he connects it to the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 8, verses 8 and 9, he says, I say this not as a command, That's that's a summary of what I've just said. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Your giving, your generosity proves your love, along with the other saints who have given. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich it is a gospel issue it does reveal what we treasure in our hearts how we give and so we become givers because god is the ultimate giver who did not spare his only son and so let us ask for the grace to be generous with what he's given to us heavenly father we thank you for this time in your word, we thank you for um, just another challenging text to consider and a, a challenging um, passage to relate to our present condition and the situation we have under the new covenant. Lord, we, we see principles in giving. Repeatedly, we are told to, to give joyfully and generously and voluntarily. Lord, we want, to, we want to be exemplary in that. And not to promote ourselves, not to, to put ourselves on a pedestal, but to glorify you. To exemplify our trust in you in the way that we give. To know that you will sustain us. And Lord, we thank you that, that we do have a church that has been sustained since we began. And that it continues to, to out-give each year. And that's, that's not something we expect or something that we have compelled. But it does reveal a generous spirit within this congregation. And so we give you the glory. We give you the praise for that situation here. And we pray that we might even give more sacrificially. We, we don't know everyone's financial situation. Those in need, we want to support them and to provide for them with the abundance that others have given out of their abundance. And Lord, we want to just simply use the offerings that we receive week after week. We want to be good stewards of those resources to continue to glorify you through the proclamation of the gospel through the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, through discipling those who go and make disciples. And we want to be a church that plants other churches, that supports missionaries and supports missions, and all of that requires sacrificial givers. Lord, those who are dependent upon you for all that they have and who recognize that everything we have is from you. Lord, may that be our hearts even now as we respond in, in worship. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Confession of faith here.